Good morning. We live in very complicated and complex days uh, with challenges coming our way from the left and from the right um, through our government, through our uh, relationships, through all kinds of uh, things that, that bring different values and morals and goals and understanding of what life is all about. And um, we've been very blessed uh, over the last few years to have uh, Dr. Tawa Anderson come and not give us all the magic answers necessarily, but certainly to challenge us to think a little bit more carefully as we do come in contact with these different things and different uh, points of input that come into our lives, challenging us to think a certain way or to believe a certain way or to act a certain way when we may very well feel that it comes in conflict or in challenge with our Christian faith. And so uh, Dr. Anderson, uh, Tawa Anderson has been working for uh, a number of years at Oklahoma Baptist University. And, and uh, the good news is uh, he is actually a genuine Canadian, but uh, has been displaced in the heat and the warmth of uh, Oklahoma which is quite a different temperature than here most of the time. But uh, very, very excited to have him come today to just challenge us and, and to help us to think through some things, especially in the area today uh, related to hurt, uh, evil, suffering, some of the things that uh, we all experience in our lives, but just trying to help us to understand how we might approach our understanding of those things in a different way, and then also to help us to consider how we can relate to those people all around us that are confused by those very same issues and challenges. Dr. Anderson, it is all yours. I think I forgot my pointer. Yeah, I'll need that. Thank you. Um, first, though, Willis. Where's Willis? Willis. There's Willis. Did you know what the message was about this morning when you chose the songs? Yes? You did a wonderful job picking songs that uh, went very, very smoothly with the message. So thank you for just the sensitivity. Um, one of the things I love about coming here, I'm pretty sure I said the same thing last year, uh, when we come here, when we worship with you, we sense God's presence. Um, and I felt the Holy Spirit here this morning, just so thankful for the worship team uh, leading us into the presence of God, um, helping us to glorify Him, to praise Him, and really setting the stage for uh, the theme um, of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, that last hymn, that we sang before before offering, it is well with my soul. Uh, how many of you know the story behind that hymn? Okay, a few of you know the story behind that hymn. It's a it's a powerful um, and very difficult story. Um, it's the name Horatio Spafford? Is that the name? I'm probably getting it slightly wrong. Uh, but he was from England, and if I re- remember the story correctly, I'm going to kind of remember off the top of my head, right? But if I remember correctly, he had come to America and was waiting for his family, his wife and three daughters, I believe, to join him in America, only to learn that while they were crossing the ocean, the ship they were on sank, and his family died in the shipwreck. 
And out of that tragedy, out of that grief, came that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. So that one verse that reads, when, oh dear, how does the, help me out? When sorrow like sea billows roll. Sea billows are waves of the sea. So when sorrow washes over me like waves of the sea that washed my family away, still I can say, it is well with my soul. Why? Not because what happened was good, but rather because of what sets our suffering into context. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is the context for our suffering. Now, I I know some of you a little bit, I know a few of you a lot better, and some of you I don't know at all, right? And so I don't know where you are at in your life, in your situation. Uh, Many of you may be in a season of deep suffering, and I have no idea that that's the case, right? Many of you may have just come through a season of suffering where you've encountered evil in your life and you're just coming out the other side of it. Others of you may have lived a very blessed life to this point where, where suffering is like the worst kind of suffering you can imagine is you ask a girl to a movie and she says no. Right? And so for some of you, that may be your life context. Wherever it is that we are at, God has something to say about evil and suffering. If you've not yet encountered deep suffering in your life, I once had a very wise man tell me the time to talk and to think deeply about the question of evil and suffering is six months before you encounter it, right? so that you have the context for how to deal with suffering in your life before you're faced with that suffering. Because then when you go through it, you've already got this understanding of how the gospel of Jesus Christ sets that suffering into context and that helps you process through it. It doesn't change the fact that you're going to encounter suffering and it's still going to be suffering, but it just helps to set it into some context. I want to begin by reading a few verses from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. That's Psalm 22. And of course, this is the psalm that Jesus quotes when he hangs upon the cross bearing the weight of our sin. He begins the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And any good Jew in the first century would have known what comes after that initial verse and they would have recited it in their heads and they would have heard Jesus reciting the whole psalm. Whether Jesus said all the words or not, they would have understood the whole psalm to be what Jesus was talking about. Suffering is a reality that Jesus experienced personally as well. 
In high school, I had a friend, uh, his name was Trevor. He summed up his philosophy of life like this. He said, life stinks and then you die. This popular phrase explains the reality that suffering is a universal fact of human life. Right? There's an old band from back in the 1980s before many of you were born called R.E.M. Any of you guys remember R.E.M.? Some of you? All right, very good. They had a song called Everybody Hurts. Right? And it was a very haunting song. It had a beautiful melody. had a wonderful, uh, soft, kind of melancholy sound to it. The chords were simple. And some of the words went like this. If you're on your own in this life, the days and the nights are long. When you think you've had too much of this life to hang on, well, everybody hurts sometimes. Everybody cries. So hold on. So the reality is that everybody experiences bouts of pain, Right? None of us are exempt from that. We experience loneliness or grief or sorrow. In one way or another, we all hurt. And then we ask, why? This is one of the most haunting questions that face modern men. It was really interesting to me. That the, the question of suffering has been around for as long as human beings have been around. Right? We, we've all suffered. But somehow, the problem of suffering, this question of what we do with evil and suffering, has become more pronounced in the 20th and 21st centuries, which is very ironic because... Generally speaking, humanity has gotten healthier and wealthier and lived longer in the last 150 years, and yet we feel more acutely than ever that there's something wrong with this world, that the suffering that we experience shouldn't be. Our experience of suffering, arguably, is less than it used to be, and yet the problem that we as human beings have with suffering has become more pronounced, not less. I think that's very interesting. I don't know what it means, but I think it's interesting. The question of why is one of the most haunting questions that face us. Why does seemingly senseless tragedy strike innocent victims? We are no strangers to tragedy and to grief. Right? In your life, you've seen people around you where death strikes early. Friends die of cancer, in accidents, other illnesses. You see death, you see mourning, you see loneliness, you see pain. We see natural disasters that take the lives of hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands. 2004, the tsunami in Southeast Asia, 200 to 300,000 people losing their lives. The tsunami in Japan causing a nuclear meltdown and again costing thousands of lives. Hurricane Katrina taking thousands of lives. We think of the evils that mankind perpetrates upon one another. 9-11, close to 3,000 lives taken. The Manchester bombing a few months ago. We see these things that humans do to others. We see things that just happen in nature and we see the suffering that results and we ask the question, why? And we ask the question, how do we deal with this? How do we wrestle with it? In short, the prevalence of evil and suffering in the world frequently leaves us with an empty heart, an empty and aching heart. We struggle to understand why we suffer, why evil things happen. And I want to talk through some of that this morning. The existence of evil and suffering raises all kinds of questions, most of which we don't have time to explore this morning. We spent some time looking at some of them yesterday uh, morning. We looked through uh, kind of what evil and suffering has to say about the existence and the character of God. Talked a little bit more about that last night with Journey. A very kind of meandering, journeying discussion we had last night. Uh, But this morning, I want to ask the question, what does the empty tomb say to the empty heart? So as children of God, how do we experience evil and suffering in the context of a Christian life that is informed by the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth? The goal I have is to, to, to 
to convince you, to persuade you that we suffer differently because Jesus has been raised from the dead. That this transforms the way that we should see suffering and it transforms the way that we should experience suffering. That we should not suffer, we should not encounter evil in the same way as believers because of what Jesus Christ has done. So I'll suggest that the resurrection of Jesus informs and transforms our experience of grief, grief, sickness, pain, senseless tragedy, and even persecution in kind of four different ways. First, he gives us hope in the midst of our suffering. Second, his resurrection assures us of our own resurrection and eternal life. Third, our future resurrection puts our current suffering in perspective. And finally, the risen Christ walks with us in our suffering and we don't suffer alone. Now, when I was eight years old, turning nine, uh, my great-grandmother died. So my mom's mom's mom passed away. And I remember after her funeral, I was going, my mom was driving me to music lessons and coming home, I remember asking my mom, so this was probably, like, my great-grandma's funeral was probably the first time in my life that I was ever in church, okay, that I ever went to something in a church, because her funeral would have been in a church, because my great-grandmother was a believer. Um, and I remember asking my mom on the way home from music lessons, Mom, where is great-grandma now? So, you know, when I kind of think back and put the pieces together, probably at the funeral, the, the, the pastor said something about, you know, we know that, I don't even remember what her first name was, Grandma Ross, that, that was, was great-grandma Ross, um, don't remember her first name, but we know that sister so-and-so is in heaven with the Lord, right? That she's not here, that she's there. And, you know, as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, I would have been kind of processing that and thinking, this sounds weird. This is like nothing I've ever heard before at home. And so I remember asking my mom, where is great-grandma now? And there was kind of this uncomfortable pause right in the car. And then finally my mom said, nowhere. When you die, that's it. You're gone. There's nothing else. And I remember sitting in the backseat of the car and just thinking to myself, well, that really stinks. Isn't there more than that? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, here's the crucial part, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are more to be pitied. We are to be pitied more than all men. If this life is all there is, Paul says, then you do in fact live a hopeless, meaningless existence. See, Paul understood the significance of a worldview that denied an afterlife. If this life is all that there is, as I believed it was when I was a teenager, then there is no point and there is no hope. And when I was a teen, I remember feeling that helplessness, that hopelessness, that pointlessness, that meaninglessness. It was Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Why is chasing after the wind meaningless and pointless? Because you can never catch the silly thing, right? You can't catch the wind, so chasing after it is pointless. And that's what life is if this life is all there is. I was helpless because the world was such an immense place, filled with such immense suffering and grief and torment, and there was nothing that one person could do to make the world a better place. And I was hopeless because there was no purpose, no meaning in life. Life could never have meaning 
if we were mortal, if we just died and then that was it. Sure, we might be remembered for a generation, maybe for five generations, if we're really bad people like Hitler. You'll be remembered for hundreds of years. But other than that, we die, we're forgotten, there's nothing left of the life that we lived. And so I grieved without hope. The Christian band, the Newsboys, have a wonderful song. It's a great song, Breakfast in Hell. Right? And one of the verses in Breakfast in Hell goes like this. Is there anybody here who's a good singer? Do you want to sing this first, Willis? No, you don't want to do that? All right, so Breakfast Clubbers, drop the hankies. Okay. Though the summer friend was odd, that day he bought those pine pajamas. His check was good with God. Those here without the Lord, how do you cope? For this morning, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Why not? Because simply as followers of Jesus Christ, they do have hope. Their friend who died, what are pine pajamas, incidentally? Anybody know what pine pajamas are? No? Okay, well, think of pajamas. What are pajamas? They're something you put on when you go to sleep. Sleep is a metaphor for death. Pine, what might be? Pine is a kind of wood. What might be made of wood that you put on when you go to sleep? That's a metaphor for death. Pine pajamas are a coffin. Yeah, okay. So that day he bought those pine pajamas, that day he got put in those coffins, his check was good with God. His check, okay, the check he wrote out, he put his faith in Christ, and God stamped it and said, certified, accepted, right? It's all good. Right? So he bought those pine pajamas, his check was good with God, and so that means that we don't grieve like those who have no hope because we have hope. And this is the transformation that's wrought in the light of the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, carrying on in the chapter. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy, the great enemy of all humanity, that which snuffs us all out eventually that enemy will be conquered by Christ. And in the light of Christ conquering death and rising again, the newsboys say, we do not grieve like those who have no hope because we have hope in the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ assures us of our own eternal life. Very traditional Easter greeting, right? He is risen. He is risen indeed, right? Why do we affirm that at Easter? What's the meaning of that? Well, the meaning of that, if he is risen indeed, what does that say about us? That we will be risen as he has been raised. As followers of Christ, we rejoice in his resurrection because of what it signifies for us. I mean, it's a pretty cool thing of its own right, right? So we should really celebrate it just for, you know, the fact that Christ conquered death, and that's pretty darn cool. But we really celebrate it because of what it means for us as well. There is, in my perspective, no greater joy than the assurance of our own bodily resurrection after our death, which is assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We've experienced the reality of being dead in our sin, 
And now I await, as Philippians 3 says, I await the reality of being raised from the dead with Christ with a glorified resurrection body. Carrying on in 1 Corinthians, this is uh, chapter 15, verse 51 and following. Listen, Paul writes, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Remember again that last verse, and it is well with my soul. Lord, haste the day when my face shall become sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall sound, and the Lord shall descend. And I forgot the last line. It is well with my soul. There's a line in between, but that's okay. Right? The trumpet shall sound. We will all be changed in the flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised and perishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Incidentally, Side note, have you ever noticed the difference between immortality and immorality? What's the difference between those two words? What's that? There's one letter difference between them. Have you ever noticed this? What's the difference between immorality and immortality? A T, right smack dab in the middle. Isn't that kind of cool? The cross of Christ right in the middle changes immorality into immortality. Okay, never mind. The Bible wasn't written in English, so it's not really what God was intending with it, but it's still pretty cool. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The empty tomb gives us a full and a certain assurance of our own victory over death. It's another popular worship song written by Matt Marr called Christ is Risen. Some of the lyrics, hear the power of these lyrics. Christ is risen from the dead. You can sing it with me, all right? Trampling over death by death, come awake. You guys know this, right? You don't know this? Any of you know this? Hands up. Who knows it? Just, just my family. Oh, dear. Okay. All right, my family, you've got to sing it with me then. You ready? No, my poor daughters. Okay. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the grave. We are one with him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from your grave. And then the bridge. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Or, sorry, oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. Christ is risen from the dead. This is the victory that we have in Christ. Christ is risen from the dead. And because of that, death has no victory over us. Hell has no claim over us. The grave has no victory for us. Death is no longer something to be feared. Death is no longer the end that will snuff us out. Rather, death is still something that we do not look forward to, but it's a transition to a new kind of life, a life with Christ. It's not the end. It's a new beginning. And it's not a new beginning in the sense that we get to be ground up and be eaten by worms and be recycled in the cycle of life, as the Lion King would say. Not that that's a bad movie. It's a great movie. Okay? But that's not the cycle of life that we are reborn into. Rather, we die and we are reborn. We are raised with a new body with Christ to live forever. And so we have the assurance of our own eternal life. But the resurrection is tied to the crucifixion. These two events, Christ's atoning death and his bodily resurrection, are the cornerstones of the Christian faith. Easter is the center of our calendar. 
It's actually where we mark the start of the Christian year from, is Easter each year. And the one only makes sense in light of the other. Only with atonement for sin does resurrection bring us hope. If we were still dead in our sins, if Christ's death does not remove our sins, then our resurrection to eternal life is a resurrection to an eternal life without God in the torment of hell. Because those who are not forgiven cannot stand in the presence of God. So the hope of the resurrection is realized only through the acceptance of the cross of Christ. Having accepted the grace of God through faith in Christ, then we can eagerly anticipate our own resurrection to eternal life. So the resurrection takes away the sting of death and brings us the sure hope of our eternal life, but it also puts our suffering into an eternal perspective. Second Corinthians chapter 4. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but I'm going to read the start of it. Chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose hope. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, light and momentary troubles, at this point some of you are thinking, does he have a clue who he's talking to? Does he know what I've gone through? He's calling my sufferings light and momentary? How dare he? Okay, you're right, Paul doesn't know you, but let's carry on. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now I want you to note that Paul isn't minimizing our experience of suffering. Sorry, I'll leave it on this one. Rather, he claims that the resurrection of Christ and the assurance of our own resurrection puts our suffering into a different perspective. Now again, some of you might be saying, well, yeah, but Paul doesn't know what I am going through or what I have gone through. And that is true. Paul doesn't know what you have gone through or what you are going through. He's never experienced the suffering that you have. Why? Because Paul is not you. And so Paul can't experience your suffering. But it is good to remember that the Paul who writes this, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far, far outweighs them all, seven chapters later in Second Corinthians writes this, talking about his own experience of Christ. Are they servants of Christ? He's talking about other people. I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And here he begins recounting a litany of sufferings that he has gone through on account of his faith in Christ. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. It's not 40 lashes with a wet noodle. It's 40 lashes with cat and nine tails, right? That had little spikes that dug into your flesh so it would rip parts of your back away when they pulled it out. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, not with weed, but with big rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food, not just for 30 hours, but maybe for days. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Yes, our suffering is real. It may be acute. And yes, maybe you have suffered more than Paul has, but Paul is not a man who did not know suffering. I know people who have experienced far more severe grief than I have and than probably I ever will. But the suffering that Paul went through was very real and very deep. And Paul understood how the resurrection of Jesus Christ put that suffering into perspective. And there was one who suffered more than Paul, and it was that one who put the suffering that Paul experienced into proper context. The one who suffered more than Paul was 
Jesus Christ Himself. The only sinless man, the one who did no wrong, the one who took all of our wrong upon Himself and suffered and bled and died. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ at one point or another? Okay, It's pretty graphic. It's pretty gruesome. It's very realistic. That's what Christ went through. If you've not seen it, just beware, you know, make sure you know what you're watching before you watch it. But this puts the suffering of Jesus Christ into real context for us. That's what He suffered on our behalf. That's what He went through because of His love for us to give us an assurance of eternal life, to give us forgiveness for sin. It's the suffering that He bore, the weight of our sin that caused God the Father to turn His face away and caused Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? He talks about His bones being able to see, people looking at Him and mocking Him. Jesus experienced, I would claim, far more intense suffering than you or I ever will. And it's Christ's suffering that gives us forgiveness of sin, and then it's Christ's resurrection that puts our suffering into context. So God Himself experiences our suffering through Christ. So while I don't know what you are going through and Paul doesn't know what you are going through, God most certainly does and has borne your suffering upon Himself at the cross. And so the last thing that comes from this is that in our human suffering, we are not alone. Others have shared in our sufferings as we have shared in the sufferings of Christ. Christ knows what you are going through because Christ bore the weight of your suffering even before you knew what your suffering would be. And Christ bore that upon Himself. So we're never going through suffering alone. We always have the presence of Christ going through it with us. But in the midst of our sufferings, we also have the assurance that others before us have walked this path and other people around us are also going through suffering. And we need not suffer alone. We have the assurance of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4 again, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Why? Because we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. It is very, very difficult in the midst of suffering, in the moment of suffering, to consider our troubles to be light and momentary. But it's essential, as Paul says, to fix our eyes on what is unseen rather than what is seen. And this is why it's so important to consider how we should experience suffering before we're experiencing suffering. So that when the suffering comes, we know how to engage it. We know how to encounter it. It is our hope for resurrection to eternal life founded upon the resurrection of Christ that puts our suffering into a perspective that allows us to endure it. The Apostle Paul records this glimpse of heaven granted to him in a vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The resurrection initiates us into a new order. Gone are the sources of suffering. Grief is no more because there will be no more death or mourning. Sickness and pain are done away with. Never again will we experience loneliness or hopelessness for God Himself will be with us and will be our God. The things that cause our suffering will have been abolished. This is the assurance that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But an important side effect of this is that we do not have to lie about our suffering. We don't have to pretend it's not there. We don't need to pretend that everything's okay when it's not. We don't need to wear a mask to hide our very real suffering. 
We don't need to pretend we're not suffering. Our assurance to eternal life, our participation in Christ's resurrection, gives us the freedom before God and His people to be open and honest about what we are going through when we are hurting. We have wonderful examples of this in the lamenting psalms where the psalmist cries out in pain. We've got Psalm 22, which we've already cited. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist is crying out to God in his feelings of abandonment. Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you, has left you? Cry out with the psalmist. Don't pretend it's not going on. Be honest with what you're experiencing. Cry out to God in the midst of community and allow the community to surround you. When we're hopeless in the midst of persecution, we can cry out to God with Psalm 55. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts are troubled. I'm distraught at the voice of the enemy, the stares of the wicked. They bring down suffering upon me and revile me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. When horror overwhelms you, don't pretend it hasn't overwhelmed you. Cry out to God. Come to the community of faith and be surrounded by that love and support it can bring. Whatever our situation, we can express ourselves honestly to God and to his people, to the community of faith. The community of faith is intended to share the burden of suffering with one another. When one member hurts, the whole body hurts with them. 1 Corinthians 12. Oftentimes, you know, we're very proud people, right? How many of you are proud people? Any proud people here, right? We don't want to impose on other people, right? We don't want to bring them down with our suffering. So, you know, if I'm suffering, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, these people, they're so happy. I don't want to bring my suffering to them and be the rainer on their parade. Right? Well, no, you know what? If there are people who are your friends, they're in community with you. If you are suffering, don't you think they'd want to know that you are suffering so they can grieve with you? Sharing your grief isn't going to somehow take away their joy. Right? When we try to suffer alone, our sufferings become larger than they need to be. You know, oftentimes, okay, so maybe it's just me, so I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes when I'm hurting over something, you know, it becomes a very big deal when I just keep it to myself. But somehow, as soon as I share it with somebody, with my wife or with a friend, it's like, oh, hang on, you know what, that's really not that big a deal. That's not really so bad. But as long as I keep it to myself and I kind of dwell in that misery, it's like crushing. It becomes a mountain, right? And sufferings that are already big become unbearable if we try to walk through it ourselves. When we share it with others, it becomes a lesser burden. All right, we need to wrap up. Time runs short. Life is a precious gift from God the Father. Now, we live in a fallen world, a world that's marred by human sin and the global consequences of sin. Sin brings evil. Evil brings suffering. And because creation has fallen, we do and we will suffer. We experience grief and pain and sorrow and real evil. And the horrible things that happen aren't just things that we don't like, things that we would rather not have happen. They are real evil. Suffering and tragedy, though, are not just meaningless events in a purposeless world. They are things that truly ought not to be. But the good news of the gospel is that the day will come when all such evil and suffering is undone. It's defeated and destroyed. And so while the current pain of death continues to sting, we can still profess with full confidence the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. What does the empty tomb say to the empty heart? We do not suffer without hope. Our grief and our pain can have redemptive effect. We're assured our own victory over death and our eternal life through Christ's death and resurrection. Our suffering is put into an eternal perspective that allows us to bear it, and we do not suffer alone. 
Christ is with us in His Holy Spirit and in His earthly body, the church. And so while we are certainly not thankful for the existence of evil, and while we do not rejoice in the fact of suffering, we can be thankful that the resurrection of Christ gives meaning and purpose and redemptive power to the suffering in our lives. As the lyrics go in another great contemporary worship song, I don't think I put it on there. That's okay. We'll come to the altar. Any of you guys know Come to the Altar? No? Again, is it just my family that knows this one? I'm sorry. We sing this one in our church and our youth particularly. Are you hurting and broken within? Ring a bell? Nobody? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sins? Jesus is calling. You know it? Okay. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. When you're suffering, when evil invades your life, your family, your work, your relationships, come to His altar. Lay your burdens down before the crucified and risen Savior, the only one who can put them into perspective and who can walk with you through them. Bring your sorrows. Trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Suffering and evil are inevitable in life. A Christian is not exempt from them. In some ways, actually, Scripture promises more suffering to those who follow Christ. So long as we continue to live in a fallen world, we will suffer. We have the ability, though, to suffer in light of Christ's resurrection rather than trying to face evil and suffering on our own. Once you encounter His empty tomb, because He is risen, He can transform our experience of suffering.